Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Rogers Communications is proposing to buy Shaw Communications in a $25 billion deal. Now, it's still got some hurdles to clear, but it cleared a big one this week. The CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television and Telecommunications Commission, announced their approval of this deal this past week. Now, there's some conditions attached to that, but it's a green light nonetheless. As I say, it's not the final hurdle, but it's a big one. So what does this all mean? for competition, for choice, for affordability in telecom. The CRTC decision, a little bit narrow in scope, but uh, its approval is indeed significant. Joining us to talk more about this deal, where this all goes from here, very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Matthew Hatfield, Campaigns Director with the group Open Media, openmedia.org. Matthew, good to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with this approval, first of all. It, it was obviously an important step for this deal, the CRTC looking through maybe a more narrow lens here. How, how significant was this? Uh, I don't think anyone expected the CRTC to block the deal, uh, but still right. it was disappointing to see sort of how wholeheartedly they affirmed it. They actually went beyond their, the real terms of their mandate here. So they were asked to look at broadcasting implications. Um, but in their decision, they went out and said that this is actually a, a good deal for consumers on the whole. Uh, that it was in the public interest, which I think most observers find quite astonishing. I, I, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, I think it's very clear this is going to be a bad uh, outcome for, for many consumers in Canada. Well, let's talk about what's at stake here, because, you know, there are obviously broadcast implications uh, regarding this this deal and, you know, television, etc., uh, but obviously, this goes well beyond that. These are cable distributors. These are internet providers. We get into the realm of uh, mobile phones as well. So this is pretty all-encompassing, isn't it, when it comes to the telecom landscape? Absolutely. And it's the kind of deal where you can either make it very complex or very simple. Uh, on the complex side, yes, there's implications to consider for wired internet, for people's phone plans, for your television, for radio, for you know, folk like yourselves even. Um, and yet, on the simple side, we know that our both our telecommunications and media uh, uh, corporate structure in Canada is a little bit overly centralized. It's more centralized than many comparable countries. And this is that situation getting quite a bit worse. So I, I think people don't need to understand all the details to know this is likely to, to make our, our prices higher um, and to make our media concentration a little bit worse in a, a market that already had a lot of problems with both. Now, let's clarify one point, because Shaw owns Freedom Mobile. Um, which is a competitor to Rogers, to Telus, to Bell. It doesn't appear as though Rogers is going to be allowed to purchase Freedom Mobile, but I think that the question of what happens to Freedom Mobile is still very up in the air at this point. What do we know about that? Yeah, that's right. So uh, currently uh, on the books, Freedom Mobile is still part of the purchase, meaning that uh, all of Freedom's mobile customers would, would be joining Rogers. Um, it seems very likely that that's going to be um, changed from uh sort of the rumors in the industry, and it's likely that another company will be buying Freedom Mobile. Uh, the question is just whether that's actually fixing many of the consequences of the deal or whether it's a, a partial and short-term fix. And I really think it's more the second. Um, so on the one hand, of course, all the broadcasting and wired internet implications are still the same with Freedom Spun Out. And on the other hand, um, there's really serious questions about whether Freedom Mobile is really a particularly viable company on their own. Uh, they they didn't um, find a, a full role for themselves when they were Win Mobile years ago. They eventually did sell out to Shaw, 
Um, and people have been pointing out that the way telecom works in Canada, um, a lot of people are buying their service through bundles that includes uh, wired internet, wireless, and home uh, and uh, cable packages. Um, and Freedom Mobile doesn't isn't able to offer that. Uh, so they're sort of at a pretty serious competitive disadvantage when they're trying to attract customers um, without Shaw's support. It was interesting, and the CRTC approval is is maybe an example of it. There seems to be this notion that, you know, if we have noble and benevolent regulators, that they can make this deal good. They can make this deal better. We can say, do this, do that, spend money here, invest here, don't do that. And we can guide this to a better place almost. Do you buy into that? Is it possible to approve this and make it a better deal for Canadians? Not, not under our current system. So the CRTC has shown that they're way, way too favorable to the, the viewpoints and perspective of big telecom companies. Uh, this is not their first decision that favors the interests of big telecom companies. They've, they've made a number of those in recent years on wired and wireless internet. And the Competition Bureau, who, as you mentioned earlier, is kind of the bigger decision coming up. Um, we, we still don't know what they will say on Roger Shaw, um, and they are, are making the majority of the decisions that are important here. Um, but they released a report yeah. at the start of February, uh, a really rare kind of piece where they essentially pointed out how weak the legislation that they are acting on is, um, and the fact that Canada has, has uniquely weak um, sort of grounds for contesting these giant buyouts, uh, because we have what's called an efficiency defense, which means if Rogers can argue that, yes, this is clearly bad for competition, um, but actually it'll be more efficient uh, in some ways in terms of delivery of service, they can still uh, force the, the Bureau to approve the merger, essentially. Um, which isn't really normal in other countries. And obviously, uh, companies like Rogers are very good at demonstrating efficiencies that make it very probable this deal will be approved. So, I mean, it's inevitable we're going to get less competition. I mean, obviously, you take Shaw out of the mix. That's a big player. Now you're left with, you know, Rogers, Bell, and Telus for the most part. Uh, it's hard to see that, that this wouldn't result in job losses. Uh, once you're kind of bringing these two companies together, you're going to get a lot of redundancy. So how, how do defenders uh, of this deal... Uh, you know, explain the upside of, of those two factors? I don't think they try very seriously to do so. I think it's kind of a can-you-stop-us situation. And unfortunately, without reforms to our Competition Act and a better CRTC, we can't. Um, so what Rogers will say when, when they're sort of going through the motions is just like, oh, this is actually going to create jobs and actually we're going to make all these new investments. Um, but if you look at the terms of these investments, they're either very short term, just a couple of years, uh, or they're really unenforceable. No one's really going to hold them to account for it. They can very easily sort of shuffle the numbers around later, and it turns out that it doesn't turn out the way they described it. Um, so, I mean, will there be any net long-term benefits from this deal? Not to anyone outside the Rogers and Shaw families, I don't think. Well, less competition doesn't mean zero competition. There is still some competition. What about the notion here that, you know, if, if Shaw customers aren't happy about uh, joining Rogers, there's an opportunity here for Bell, for Telus to woo them. Maybe there is some some upside to, to that kind of a, almost like a bidding war for, for customers. Is that a possibility, do you think? I would love that to be true, uh, and I certainly encourage people to use this as, as an opportunity to sort of renegotiate their contracts. You can always try to get a little bit more from your provider. Um, but the reality is that the big three tend to really mirror each other and offer extremely similar deals at similar times, uh, and they only really greatly improve the terms of those deals when they're forced to by sort of catching up a little bit to the world's market uh, or by a competitor like Shaw. And Shaw played a really interesting role historically in the market where a lot of uh, sort of consumer-friendly first-mover uh, innovations were introduced by Shaw because they were smaller than the big three um, and trying a little bit harder to attract customers. 
And that's one of the things I'm, I'm really sad to think is going to be leaving our market, where things like uh, Shaw was the first company that didn't charge people for the writers on, on cable service. Um, they were one of, the, one of the leaders in introducing widespread public Wi-Fi hotspots, especially in British Columbia. Um, those kind mm -hmm. of uh, innovations we're just likely to see a lot fewer of from the big three who just have no interest in, in doing something that uh, one of their big competitors isn't already doing. I mean, even if this deal were to to be blocked or somehow collapse, it's not as any as though anybody's you know necessarily raving about our current status quo. It's obviously flawed as well. This may amount to a worsening, but we weren't coming from a great place to begin with. So, if we look at the broader picture, when it comes to lack of competition or prices higher than they need to be, I mean, blocking this deal doesn't fix that. What what does? What do we need to do? You know, to to really invigorate telecom in Canada in in induce more competition, protect consumers? What, what's needed? We need to introduce ways of having a sort of enduring competition in the market, competition that can't just be removed by uh, buyouts like this one. So Shaw was the most successful competitor to the big three we've ever seen, um, and they are, they are going to be bought out most likely through this deal. Um, so what we need is a way of reducing the cost of entering the market to make it easy for lots of new companies to come in. Um, and if enough new companies can come in at any time, uh, the big three can't just do, use these buyouts to restrict competition. And that basically means a service-based model, meaning uh, that the companies that make infrastructure uh, and the companies that sell the services from that infrastructure to us shouldn't be the same. It's something the CRTC has really resisted. They've always said the model of, of uh, facilities-based competitors like Shaw is the way to go. Um, but I think this, this deal really highlights that that, that model is never going to work because if they get big enough, if they're successful enough, they will be bought out. And it takes many years and a lot of investment to be even as successful as Shaw is, let alone to, to get as big as, as one of the big three. As you say, the Competition Bureau, that review is going to be maybe the big one. So what are we anticipating in terms of, of the timeline here? Well, it could be any day now. Um, we, we hear all kinds of rumors. Um, I think there's a pretty good chance we'll see it in the next few weeks. Um, and I think they may be giving it a bit of time because they may be wanting to allow whoever is going to buy Freedom Mobile, if that is the, part of the decision, um, to announce at the same time that that's what's going to happen, just to give a, a sort of more coherent picture of what's going on. Um, but really, the, unfortunately, because of the weakness of our competition law, there's not a very high chance that they're going to actually block the merger. I think in 120 years or so of, of uh, fulfilling their functions, they've only fully blocked a merger once. Um, so what we're likely to see is uh, a number of conditions attached to the deal, um, similar to what the CRTC did. And uh, our frustration is just that you really can't attach conditions, enough conditions or powerful enough conditions to this kind of deal uh, to restrict it from having uh, really, really detrimental impacts on, on prices and competition and, and jobs and such. And if the federal government or the federal cabinet were so inclined, could they step in here at some point? It's, it's a little ambiguous. I mean, uh, I think they would tell you no. Uh, certainly, if Minister Champagne, uh, the, the chief minister here, uh, Minister of Industry, if he wanted to, he could have given very strong signs to the CRDC and to the Competition Bureau that he wanted them to do everything in, his, in their power uh, to block this deal. And he has not done that. So what he has said is that he's looking at the spectrum uh, allocation issue very closely, and spectrum is the main thing that's directly under his power. Um, but I think our, our industry minister is hiding a bit from this. I think he, uh, he, do he doesn't want to spend the political capital to block the deal, but he also doesn't want to wear it. And unfortunately for him, I think he will wear it uh, at the end of it. Like he, his, his will be the term, uh, and this will be the government under which this enormous uh, fourth or fifth largest in, in Canadian history buyout happens. Um, and the consequences will be owned by, by them, unfortunately.
there's still the whole question of the virus itself. We're not really asking for the virus's opinion on ending all of these restrictions. Uh, It's kind of marching to its own drum. And obviously, the virus has not gone away. This initial Omicron wave has obviously subsided. Uh, But there's something going on with with Omicron that is interesting. It was something we noticed right at the beginning. We first discovered Omicron. There were a couple of branches of this Omicron tree. For whatever reason, it was the version known as BA1 that took off, sparking a, a global wave, including here in Canada. But as that has subsided, BA1's sibling, cousin, BA2, has started to emerge. Now, there are some similarities uh, between the two. Fortunately, when it comes to severity, it appears as though there are a lot of similarities. When it comes to vaccines, there are a lot of similarities. But BA2 does seem to be a little bit more contagious, which could be a concern. So as BA2 now seems to be displacing BA1, what, what is the concern about the impacts? The wastewater data that's gathered in various cities across the country does seem to indicate a rise in cases, which could be due to a more contagious variant. Maybe it's also due to people getting back to normal lives and and the subsiding of restrictions. Joining us to talk a bit about where we're at and uh, what kind of a threat BA2 represents, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, an infectious disease physician and scientist based out of the Toronto General Hospital. Dr. Bogosh, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back on. I'm obviously, we're still in the Omicron realm here, but but how do we distinguish between these these various uh, types of of Omicron? Yeah, I mean, this is really something where the genetics uh, and that we call this genetic sequencing will sort of parse apart what BA1 versus BA2. But like you pointed out, I mean, we had our initial wave uh, of Omicron in you know December, January, February. It petered off, thankfully. Uh, but uh, you know, there's this other we'll call it a sub-lineage, for lack of a better word, of Omicron mm-hmm. called BA2. And yeah, you know, it's more transmissible, causes about very similar clinical spectrum of illness. It's, uh, the vaccines work just the same against BA1. If someone's been infected with BA1, you can still get a BA2 infection. It's just much less likely if you've already recovered. But yeah, uh, but yeah it's more transmissible, and uh, it, it certainly finds a way to infect people who have not yet been infected, or even some people who have been vaccinated it can still infect you the vaccines reduce your risk of severe infection three doses of vaccine actually reduces your risk of infection as well just not as much as others mm-hmm. uh but uh, but yeah it's around it's growing the wastewater signals are, are across the country are showing that it's on the rise and you know it would come to no one's surprise if we start to see a bump in what we call them delayed indicators or delayed metrics like hospitalizations if we start to see a bump in that in the coming days or a week or two from now it's interesting. It's part of what made Omicron so contagious was those immune escape properties. But when it comes to BA2, it's, you, you alluded to, it's, it's quite similar to BA1, at least in terms of immune evasion. So do we understand what makes it more contagious? And I guess further to that, if this is the more contagious version, why, why didn't it take off first? Yeah, it's not entirely clear. And I, I fully admit that we don't have all the answers. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes there's something called a founder effect, which is you've got a, a big introduction of one particular virus and it just takes over. And it takes a bit of time for other viruses that are around that are, for lack of a better word, more competitive to uh, to take over. We saw that happen, by the way, with uh, the alpha variant at this time last year, where it just took over the uh, original COVID strain that we had. We saw it with the Delta variant, where it swept through and mm-hmm. took over and replaced all of the Alpha variant. 
And then we're seeing it again with Omicron, first BA1 and now BA2. If something's more competitive, if something's more transmissible, it will take over. The pace at which it takes over is really dependent on how transmissible it is and also the levels of community-level protection and community-level immunity that we have. But it's here. It's taken over. It's in some neighborhoods, like in some parts of the world, it's taken over faster, like we've seen it rip through uh, some European countries pretty quick. In the United States, it's actually pretty slow. It's growing, but it's just growing at a slower right. rate. I guess, you know, maybe there's a seasonality in, in, you know, effect in that. I mean, you know, we can look from European country to European country and I don't know, it doesn't, we don't see any obvious patterns here. These explanations don't seem to fit nicely in, into a box, I guess, as to why we're seeing it more so one country than the other. It's hard to pin down, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I really do think there's a lot we can learn from other countries and we can look ahead to Europe because they're usually a few weeks ahead of us. But on the other hand, some, some people just oversimplify these direct country to country comparisons and says, you know, they'll say, Oh, well, they did this and therefore we need to do that. And, you know, right. I think there, there's some gross over, oversimplification with these country to country comparisons. But what's pretty clear is if you look at Europe and you look at parts of Asia, you know, all these places had a big, or many of these places had a big Omicron wave, you know, December, January, February, it subsided. And in many of these places, they're now seeing a recurrent wave uh, and, and growth. And what's also interesting, too, is if you look right now and, you know, at the tail end of March 2022, some places in Europe are, are actually turning around. They've had a small wave and things are improving in terms of mm-hmm. case loads and hospitalizations, whereas other places, case numbers are still on the rise. And, you know, in Canada, it's really hard to know because we're just not doing a ton of community level testing. So we have to rely on other things like wastewater surveillance and sort of modeling of uh, cases that we do have uh, access to. And, of course, looking at other things like hospitalizations and deaths. And, you know, right now, I think it's fair to say that we're in the early part of a spring wave. It's just not quite clear how big this wave will be, how significant it will be, how, how much disruption it will cause. But I think it's fair to say that we will see a bump in, in hospitalizations in many parts of the province, there's actually probably, or many parts of the country, there's probably early indications that we're seeing a, a very early rise in hospitalizations here in Ontario. But again, to what extent? Like, I just don't know how how significant this wave is going to be. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if we, we rewind to the end of November, right, when, when Omicron first emerged, um, obviously no one in Canada had yet been exposed to it. Uh, now we have a situation where a whole lot of Canadians have been exposed to it. More Canadians since then have received booster shots. But at the same time, you know, there was at least an appetite for some level of, of public health measures when the Omicron wave first hit. We, we really don't, for the most part, have anything in place right now. Maybe even we're, we're seeing a little bit of waning immunity in, in some parts of the population. So in some ways, we're, we're, we're well positioned. In other ways, we've let down our guard a little bit. What that adds up to, I guess, is, is the big question here. <laughs> it's a home run. Exactly, right? Like, listen, most Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians are vaccinated with one or two doses, and many, of course, with a third dose. Um, you know, and if you couple that with so many people, especially over the last three months, were infected and recovered. And you can't ignore the protective benefit that that has. I mean, obviously, you don't want anyone to get infected or get sick, but a lot of people have, and that helps, especially if coupled with vaccination. So, you know, we have pretty significant community-level protection. We're not in 2020 in the pre-vaccine era. I mean, so, so that yeah. does count for something. But yeah, you know, there is waning immunity from some of these vaccines. There certainly are very little in the way of public health measures. And, you know, like, what, what do you do with this information? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, 
it's fair to say we have, you know, significant community level protection, but I don't know. It's hard to quantify because we just, there's a lot of uncertainty. The other thing too is, well, probably, this is speculation here, we'll probably see booster vaccines like a fourth dose become eligible for older or vulnerable populations. And again, you know, we here's the predictable, you know, debate about vaccines and anger and backlash or uh, polarization about <laughs> right. vaccines. But you know what? There's some emerging data demonstrating that maybe, I'm careful with my words, uh, an additional booster might be might be helpful for select populations who are at risk of severe outcomes. The other thing, too, is masks. I mean, even though they're not mandating masks, you can still choose to wear a mask in indoor settings. We know they're not perfect, but they still they really still help protect the individual and protect those around you. So I think there's things that we have under our control that we can do. You can get vaccinated, you can wear a mask, you can acknowledge that COVID's still here and it's still impacting us and, and the world around us. It's interesting too. Um, you know, I saw it out of uh, New York in New York City. They're they're setting up a system to try to make uh, Paxlovid more easily available. This is the Pfizer drug that that can help uh, reduce hospitalizations, can help keep people out of hospital. That you know, there's numbers that people can phone, and you know how to do a test and how to confirm you have COVID, and then how to obtain Paxlovid as a way of trying to minimize the the impact on the hospital system. The availability of that drug, I think, has been a little more limited in Canada. As we look to deal with whatever wave we're about to deal with or future waves, these kinds of tools are, are going to be crucial. Where, where are we at on, on that? Well, we're, we're pretty behind the eight ball on the therapeutic side of things. And, you know, we certainly do have good therapeutics in Canada, but we have a lot of room to grow on our outpatient therapy. So if you're sick and you're in the hospital, we've got really good drugs to treat people with that have really transformed yeah. the care of COVID. And they work. Like people die way less frequently because of the care they receive in hospital. Out of hospital care, there's room for improvement, and a lot of that room for improvement means we just need greater access to these medications. And one of them is Paxlovid. Um, yeah, it's here. It's hard. It's not hard to get. It's just limited because it's got such a narrow use for the highest of high risks. Uh, but, but, of course, I think if you have easy access to that pill, we could really – it looks like it really does – keep people out of hospital and, and obviously that's that's exactly what we need i mean when we really got into trouble in most canadian settings was because our hospitals became overwhelmed we just couldn't care for the burden of people infected with covid if you can keep people well and out of hospital obviously we're doing something right i love the u.s approach it's not perfect but they're really aiming to like that program in new york you know get the drug to the people lower every possible barrier uh, the u.s right. is going to do this pharmacy test and treat strategy. I think that's brilliant. We could copy and paste that here in Canada. I think the other point to remember too is like this isn't a drug for a fully vaccinated 24 year old with no underlying medical conditions. It's probably going to have no benefit in, a, in an individual mm -hmm. like that. It's really the heavy lifting appears to be in uh, people with, who are at greater, greater risk for hospitalization and death. But again, let's get the drug out. Let's get the drug and then let's get the drug out quickly to people who need it. It'll it, it, it probably go a long way in helping them. As you're probably well aware, April 1st, we'll see another increase in the federal carbon tax. It will increase to $50 a ton. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, that tax will keep growing each year until it reaches $170 a ton in 2030. Now, the government would, would assure you that, look, as the rate rises, so too does the rebates. And so the rebate offsets the costs. At least that's the idea. But is that how it works in practice? 
Well, to that end, there's an important new analysis from Canada's parliamentary budget officer looking at not just the impact of the taxes it is now, but looking at what the impact will be as it climbs to $170 a ton by 2030. And this analysis finds that there is indeed a net cost to households. Now, it's not the same for all households, not the same for all regions, but it does represent a net cost. Well, joining us to talk about this analysis, very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Canada's Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux, joins us on the line. Mr. Giroux, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. As we look ahead to 2030 and the rising uh, price of of the government's price on carbon up to $170 per ton, as mentioned, this is the first look at what impact that is going to have on households. What are you factoring in when you assess the the impact of a, a future policy like this? Well, first of all, we consider the cost of the cost of the carbon tax itself that is paid directly, and also the fact that it will be embedded in the price of many things that people buy. For example, all the goods and services that people purchase will have a component embedded because most of the inputs, things we buy, have a, a component that's fossil fuel transport, for example. So we look at that minus the rebate. So we arrive at what we used to, to call, uh, not what we used to call, but what we calculated before, which was the net cost of the carbon tax. When you consider only the carbon tax paid and the rebates that the government is providing to, uh, to households. So we did that first. And we also separately looked at the impact of the carbon tax on the Canadian economy. Because if you are taxing uh, a type of product such as fossil fuels, well, it makes these fuels more expensive and there's uh, a tendency to substitute these fuels for other types of energy that is less expensive. But this has a cost for those who can't substitute or even for those who choose to substitute, but they have to, to buy something that's a bit more expensive or retire pieces of equipment that is still working. If you think about uh, buying an electric car, for example, that has a cost. So we had looked at that for the economy as a whole, but what we had not done is combining that economic aspect, the impact of the carbon tax, into what it means for household finances. And that's what we did in the report that we released yesterday. We combined the impact of the carbon tax and the rebates So most households, if you just look in isolation at the carbon tax they pay minus the rebate, most households are usually better off. But when you also take into consideration the impact of the economic changes and the reduction in economic efficiency compared to a scenario where there wouldn't be any carbon tax, then the picture is is different. And and we find that there will be a negative impact for most households. Interesting. So when, when looking at a policy like this, there are then, I suppose, indirect costs of, of a policy like this. And I suppose there are also impacts on the economy. Are, are, you, are you factoring those in then? And to what extent is that relevant in, in this analysis and understanding the impact on, on households, both the indirect costs and, and potential impact to economic growth? Well, I think it's very relevant to look at the impacts on the economy, and that's that's what we do. We look at, for example, what happens if you increase the price of fossil fuels by the amount that will be uh, will be will be generated by a carbon tax that will increase, as you mentioned, to one hundred and seventy dollars per ton by. 2030, and and it's it's possible to measure that. Of course, it's uh, it's 
fraught with uncertainty. So it's not a, an exact science because it's very difficult to predict accurately what will happen in 2030. But we know that if the carbon price increases as it's scheduled to happen, it will have negative impacts on some sectors. For example, obviously the oil and gas sector will, will have a, a disproportionate impact. Uh, but the transportation sector will also have negative impacts because the transportation sector is mostly running on fossil fuel right now. So, and, and there, there are other sectors, for example, um, banking and trade will probably be uh, affected as well, but to a much, much lesser extent. So it's possible to determine the impacts across the economy, various sectors, even at the provincial level, and then to translate that into uh, the impacts on households through reductions in, for example, employment income or investment income. And in that mm -hmm. case, uh, both will be affected. How do you though factor in uh, the the counterfactuals of the you know for example not having a policy like this what what some would say is the cost of of doing nothing when it comes to carbon pricing or for example the potential benefits of of policies like this is is it possible to include that in an assessment like this? Well, the cost of uh, or the cost of benefits of new technologies, for example, that's very difficult to factor into that because. The new technologies that will have to be in place to fully replace uh, carbon fossil fuels, sorry, they're not all known yet, uh, although some of them we can have a, an idea that they will be coming into market, but we don't know exactly at what pace and the exact form they will take. So it's easy to think about uh, wind turbines or solar panels, but we'll have to go further than that. Some people are talking about nuclear fusion, for example. So between now and 2030, which is the time scope, time horizon of the report, I, it's very difficult to determine whether there will be sufficient advances in technology to fully uh, or to at least partially replace fossil fuels, which would alleviate some of the pressures. So that's why we have not taken into account the benefits of new technologies because it's a relatively short time horizon and it's unlikely that there will be major technological breakthroughs between now and 2030 to completely or at least significantly displace fossil fuels. The cost of doing nothing, not addressing climate change, uh, has cost uh, and we are in the process of trying to assess that, but it's a, it's a very challenging field of study. What I also find interesting in this analysis is that the impact on households does differ. It differs depending on household income. It differs depending on region. Why do we see those differences? Well, it, it varies across household income because uh, households have different consumption patterns depending on their income, uh, on average, that is. So lower income households, they don't tend to have big houses or big apartments. They don't they don't tend to drive as much or drive bigger cars, whereas uh, households with uh, higher income tend to have more people uh, uh, in the household, also have um, more consumption of fossil fuels, heating, and so on. So that's across the, the income scale for households. And across regions, the impacts are different because the power mix differs also across provinces. For example, Alberta and Saskatchewan tend to rely more on fossil fuels for electricity generation, 
for example, compared with Manitoba and Ontario. But also the economic structure tends to differ. The Alberta economy depends more than other provinces on the oil and gas sector, but there are other sectors that tend to be fossil fuel intensive in other provinces. And the differences in these economic structures affect the provincial impact for household. Because if more people are employed, for example, in the transportation sector, um, that'll be, uh, that'll have a bigger impact in terms of employment income. So that's, in broad terms, what explains the differences between household across income levels and regions of the country. Very interesting. Listen, I wanted to ask you as well, and a couple of other issues that you've done some some research on and some conversations that have been happening around some of these issues. Um, the, the question of defense spending and whether Canada can or should uh, meet its uh, NATO commitment of spending 2% of GDP on defense uh, you've looked at some of the numbers. If we were to get to 2% of GDP in defense spending, what, what kind of numbers might we be looking at? Well, we're looking at uh, updating these numbers because uh, there will be a, a defense, a defense, sorry, a budget tabled in the next couple of weeks. And um, it's not always easy to track exactly how much the government is spending to the dollar on specific areas. But uh, a broad rule of thumb suggests that if we were to meet the 2% target next year, it would mean uh, between 20 and $25 billion in new spending. It's probably closer to the 20 billion mark and that is additional spending it's not like we would need to spend 20 billion we would need to provide to spend an additional 20 billion dollars next year if we were to meet the two percent target but of course if we have economic growth and inflation when you have a denominator so that's the gdp that's growing at a healthy pace it means that defense spending has to also grow at a fast pace to maintain the 2% target. And and that's pretty expensive in the case of Canada because we start from a, a relatively low base of defense spending compared to the size of the economy. So roughly yeah. speaking, 20 to $25 billion more per year, every year. And also the, the question of pharmacare and a national dental care program, that came up this week. And, and you did some costing of the pharmacare that was in the NDP platform last year. You did some costing as well, or the PPO did some costing uh, on the uh, idea of a national dental plan, I think, in 2020. So those numbers may have changed as well. But, but roughly speaking, what kind of a price tag might we be looking at for those kinds of programs? So that's a, a question that was asked to us by an NDP MP who wanted to know what would cost the implementation of a national pharmacare program with very specific parameters, for example, using a list of prescribed drugs that would be um, uh, available for reimbursement with specific co-payments, etc. So we arrived in 2020 at an $11 billion cost per year ongoing and, and rising uh, with inflation and population growth. So you're easily talking now about probably $12 billion if that was to be implemented with the same parameters, um, either later this year or early next year. So it's uh, not an insignificant amount of money. Earlier this month, Leah Thomas won America's top trophy in university sports in swimming. So a victory in the women's 500-yard freestyle race, competed in other races. The first openly transgender athlete to win that top prize. 
but it raises some interesting questions. Is there an inherent advantage to being born biologically male? What is the basis for having separate men and women's competition in sports? And how do transgender athletes fit into that? So there's some interesting dilemmas for sporting organizations and associations to deal with here. Leah Thomas had previously competed in swimming as a male, was allowed to compete with a female, and won quite handily, which raised some questions from other competitors about fairness. How do we measure fairness in this conversation? How do associations and organizations grapple with all of this? No less a figure than Caitlyn Jenner, of course, who previously competed as a male in the 1976 men's Olympic decathlon, said, quote, no, it wasn't fair. It's not a fair fight. But went on to say, but she played by the rules. So were the rules the problem here? Joining us uh, to talk more about some of the dilemmas for sporting organizations and where we might find some compromise, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. John Pike, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Open University in the UK, former chair of the British Philosophy of Sport Association, and co-authored an important paper on these issues called Fair Game. You can read at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Dr. Pike, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Good to speak to you again. All right, so for people not familiar with the Leah Thomas saga, what, what do people need to know about this story, first of all? So Leah Thomas competed um, at, she's at Penn University um, and competed as a male swimmer, um, then took time out, uh, took hormone suppressing, testosterone suppressing treatment, and then competed in the female category um, uh, with quite an amount of success, was very fast. Um, as a as a female swimmer, um, mediocre as a male swimmer. Mm-hmm. But when the times translate across, uh, although there was some reduction in uh, Thomas's times, there was uh, the ranking. She uh, she went up the rankings by hundreds of positions and took the NCAA title in the five hundred yard freestyle. Um, it's pretty clear, I think, to everyone that this was partly because of the advantage of being born male. Um, and that advantage was not removed by the treatment that Thomas under, underwent. What's your understanding then of what the NCAA standards are and how do they compare to the standards in, in other sporting organizations and sporting bodies about allowing uh, transgender individuals to, to compete this way? Well, the NCAA um, rules are slack um, and they're not as uh, rigorous as some other sporting organizations. But I don't think any sporting organization has got this quite right yet. Um, So one of the better organizations you might think is uh, World Athletics. The best organization that really has grappled with this is World Rugby. Um, And what I think people have, they've they've gone down a path that is, is not a good path to go down of thinking that testosterone suppression uh, will remove male biological advantage. And we know from the science that it won't. Um, If you don't get rid of male advantage, if you have residual male advantage for trans women, then it seems to me that it's not fair for them to compete in female sport. 
Um, it's a fairly straightforward question in the end, because I think that it's unfair for people who are male-bodied and have male advantage to compete in female sports. And the reason for thinking that that's the case is that female sport is about giving women equal opportunity to compete for sporting success without uh, the presence of competitors with male advantage. Mm -hmm. Now, women can't access, females can't access uh, male advantage. They can't access, you can't make your um, pelvis narrower. Uh, you can't get the muscle density that uh, males have, that all males have. And so there are sort of physiological advantages that are closed off um, for, for female humans, adult human females. That's what I mean by women here. And so it's simply not fair. If you have a class of uh, female sports, sports people to have male-bodied sports people in that class. It's interesting, too, because swimming alongside Leah Thomas, it was in the, uh, the 100 freestyle final, was a swimmer by the name of Isaac Hennig. Isaac Hennig is a transgender yeah. male, swims, uh, at, I think, out of Yale University, and yet was still eligible to compete in the women's competition. So it's, is that a double standard? What, what do we make of that? Well, I think I've got no problem with Isaac Hennig swimming in the female category. Um, because although Isaac Hennig's gender identity is male, um, they have a female body, they don't have male physiological advantages. Um, if you like, the best way to think about this is that it's asymmetrical, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's unbalanced. The, the, the issues surrounding trans men competing in male, uh, male, the male category and trans women competing in the female category are fundamentally different because what you've got is this consistent male advantage across the two categories. That's why it's important that the female category is closed to females, uh, but the male category can be open. And that's what I've argued in the um, McDonald Laurier Institute paper that, that you mentioned earlier. Well, so it, yeah. opening up the, the male category. So Isaac Hennig could, could swim in that category as well, as far as, as far as I'm concerned. And certainly if they took testosterone supplementation, then they would have to swim in that category, but that's because of the anti-doping regulations mm -hmm. rather than a matter of sex categorization. Well, the reaction has, has been quite something. I think there, there were those who want to be supportive of, of Leah Thomas, and, and, and at some level, I think we can all understand and sympathize with, with that, uh, to, to support Leah Thomas and what they're going through and uh, to, to support their identity, but at the same time recognizing the realities of these sorts of competitions. There was a letter from a group of swimmers at the University of Arizona uh, saying that the NCAA had successfully failed everyone. Uh, by allowing yes. Thomas to compete. So there, there is also a lot of frustration uh, amongst uh, amongst competitors and, and observers as well. Yes, and I think that was a powerful letter, and I had a great deal of sympathy with the, the Arizona swimmers who, who penned it. Um, and I think you're right that we can all be and all want to be kind of socially supportive of people who make the decision to transition. Mm -hmm. um, this is a different... Um, matter though. Um, this is a matter of fairness in sport. And there are other contexts 
like sport, such as uh, prisons, rape crisis centres, where specific context-dependent uh, values uh, are, are important and relevant. So in sport, it's sporting fairness. And sporting fairness is about bodies. And bodies come in roughly two varieties, male and female. Um, I say roughly to cut a long story short, but in two varieties. And competition in sport and fair competition in sport needs to take um, cognizance of that, needs to recognise that fact. And it means that you can't just slip across categories on the basis of an inner sense of how you feel, on, an, on a basis of your gender identity. There are lots of things you can do, socially speaking, um, if you know, we don't worry about how people dress or what they're their names are or their pronouns are generally it makes not it doesn't make a huge great difference to other people's lives but in sport because bodies matter and because sex bodies matter we have to say this isn't quite right it doesn't quite work and i think the demands of tra some trans people uh and by no means all but some trans people um push reality away um, in a way that is actually damaging to the interests of other groups of people and in this case very obviously damaging to the interests of female swimmers not only at Arizona not only in the NCAA but all the way through because these things ripple out and have bad effects on participation and fairness and in some cases safety in competition all the way through sport. Which are issues that cannot be ignored. Uh, there are, of course, political and social considerations, and, and I think these organizations are sensitive to that, right? The idea that, that somebody is female with an asterisk is seen to almost be denying their identity, and that takes on political connotations. So that, that certainly uh, affects this, this conversation, doesn't it? It does, but we have to, we have to see certain values as important and certain competing rights as important. In the end, there's going to likely to be a some sort of messy compromise here. Um, and I, I advocate one sort of messy compromise, which is the female open um, categories, which in fact maybe isn't such a compromise for anyone. It just means that trans people do not get their gender identity affirmed in sports but they don't get it trans women don't get it denied either right um if you have an open category you say anyone can enter this one way anyone can enter this category regardless of your your gender identity so we're not uh, the, the point is not to ask people or question people about their gender identity it is though to preserve sport for women as sport for people who do not have male physiological advantages I think that's important if we are to have equal opportunities for, for women. Um, I worry, yes, there is a, a social and a political uh, climate here, but I think, social, uh, I, I think that fair sport for women is a political and social priority. Mm -hmm. um, and it shouldn't be forgotten, and it is being forgotten in this. This looks like, uh, for some trans advocates, 
it's thought that this this change in sport is um, has zero costs. It doesn't. It has real costs for real people who are being uh, bumped off the podium, bumped out of finals. Uh, their their sporting endeavour and their sporting um, achievements are being downgraded, and this is a real harm. Um, it's a harm for people who are interested and care about sport. Maybe some people aren't interested, don't care about sport. But if that's the case, I'm not sure what uh, what stake they have in in this in this regulation. Sporting organisations need to get this right. This isn't Leah Thomas's fault right. directly. It's important that the rule makers get this right and recognise the real harms that are being done to women. Well, it almost feels like there's an urgency of sorts to to some sort of a, a compromise here because maybe we see the pendulum swing the other way. And there, there are jurisdictions in the United States, for example, uh, that are looking at legislation uh, to to basically impose on sports to, to take a more firm stance with regard to transgender athletes. And I don't know if that's the best way to resolve this either. What, what do you make of um, you know where we're at in terms of if organizations aren't going to deal with this, we may see lawmakers in some places do so? Yes, I think that's. I think you're right that the imperative now falls on sports organisations to get this right, and so far they haven't. I mean, I think they've been uh, slow, and I think they've been backward in seeing the real difficulties posed by uh, just straightforwardly incorporating trans women into female into the female category of sport without thinking through the science and without thinking through the implications for women athletes and without understanding sporting fairness properly. Um, I think they've got the wrong model in their minds. They think this is something like the battle against uh, racism or homophobia, uh, where there is a tide of history on one side and it's important to be on the right side of history. This is more complicated than that and more difficult I don't think sports organisations recognise that. Um, I do think, though, that women's rights are not something that falls to the right and falls to the Conservatives to protect. I think this is an issue that uh, liberals and progressive people need to take seriously because there is real damage being done to women's rights, uh, particularly in this case by the incorporation to, to, to the rights of Uh, women athletes who are being pushed aside by the incorporation of uh, trans women into into female sports. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. We'll be right back.